Church family, I invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42. Our text today is going to be chapter 42, 43, 44, and 45. I know, that's a lot. Don't worry. Genesis chapter 42 is where we're going to start today, but before we read, let me ask you a question. When someone wrongs us, what is our natural reaction? When someone wrongs us, what is our natural reaction? Retaliation? Payback? Revenge? Whatever word we want to use there, but that's our natural reaction. Why do we respond that way? How do we rationalize intentionally hurting someone who has hurt us? I think it's because we believe that in those moments that revenge is justified. We rationalize it by thinking if if this person hurt me, then the only right thing is for me to hurt this person in return. He or she deserves it. And that's how we rationalize it. That's our line of thinking. Now, Let me ask you another question. What does revenge accomplish? What does revenge accomplish? Not much other than causing more damage to our relationship. It definitely doesn't lead to reconciliation. It doesn't lead to restoration in our relationship with that other person. Today we're going to look at the next passage in this section of Genesis where we've really been focusing on the life of Joseph. Now, if you remember, back in chapter 37, Joseph's ten older brothers had sold him into slavery. Do you remember that? It was weeks ago for us as we've studied through, but it was chapter 37. It was over 20 years ago in the context of our passage for today. And and during the first 13 years, Joseph experienced false accusation, wrongful imprisonment, and abandonment. And yet we've seen that God was with Joseph, and Joseph ended up rising to second in command in Egypt, where he was responsible for storing up grain for the seven years of famine that was going to come after seven years of plenty. Now that seven years of famine that God said was coming has arrived. And the land of Canaan, which is where Joseph is from, where his family still lives, it has been hit by this famine. And so Joseph's brothers in our passage today are going to go looking for food. They've heard, hey, Egypt has food. Remember, they don't know that they think we're going to see. They think Joseph has died at this point. They have no clue that Joseph is responsible um, for there being food in Egypt. But they are going to go to Egypt to find food, which means Joseph is now going to come face to face with his brothers who had considered killing him, but then had sold him into slavery over 20 years earlier. It's going to be a time in Joseph's life when revenge very much so seems justified. But as we're going to see, there's far more going on from God's perspective than merely just a choice between revenge or reconciliation. God is sovereignly at work in our passage today, preserving life. And it's this sovereign plan of God which only um, not only leads to the reconciliation that we'll see between these brothers and their, their family, but it's ultimately going to lead to a reconciliation between us and God through a better Joseph who is coming and who is going to entrust himself to God's sovereign plan, even though it's going to cost him his life. And because then we, through this better Joseph who has come, have been reconciled to God through God's life-giving plan of rescue, then we, church, can choose to pursue life-giving reconciliation in our relationships with one another instead of pursuing Revenge, which is the opposite of life-giving. In fact, it only leads to destruction and death. Genesis 42 through 45 teaches us this, church. When revenge looks enticing, God's sovereign plan of preserving life must rule our response. When revenge looks enticing, God's sovereign plan of preserving life must rule our response. Now, we have a lot of text to cover today, and so I'm going to format the sermon a little differently than normal. Um, 
we are going to read this text today. It's God's word. If we can, if we can, if we can from time to time stuff ourselves on table food, from time to time we can stuff ourselves on God's word. And I think we'll be all the better for it. But instead of reading the whole passage at the beginning, I'm going to read it as we go. Okay, so I'm going to read it as we go. And um, as we do, we're going to try to kind of pause, make some observations, hopefully connect the dots in the story. Um, I want to share with you three truths today underneath this main idea. Um, and, uh, and, and the first one's going to come early on. The last two are basically going to be at the very end, okay? Um, just the way that the, the text is structured, and uh, I think it's going to work best for us to walk through it. So let's start with chapter 42. To get our context, let's look at the last verse of chapter 41. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Now, let's jump into chapter 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And, and, and he said, Behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said, they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give donkey, uh, his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We've never uh, been spies. We're twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, 
Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. All right, that's chapter 42. So in chapter 42, Jacob sends his 10 oldest sons to Egypt to buy food. And notice the reason he gives. Look at verse 2. That we may live and not die. That we may live and not die. That phrase clues us in on one of the main themes of this passage. This is a life and death passage, church. We want to keep noticing this theme of life and death as we continue throughout our text for today. Also, remember that during all of this, the brothers' deceitful scheme of 20 years ago is still continuing. Remember that they had deceived Jacob into thinking that Joseph had been killed by wild animals, when in reality, they had sold him into slavery and made made a, a few coins off of him. Joseph and Benjamin were the only sons of Jacob's favorite wife. Remember, Rachel is his favorite wife. They're the only sons, so they were his favorite sons. Joseph is no more, so now Benjamin has taken his place as the favorite son in the family. And Jacob is not. He's already lost Joseph. He, he's not about to lose Benjamin. And so he, is, he, he doesn't send them on that first journey. And we've seen at the end of the chapter, he was saying, I'm not going to send them on a second journey. I'm not going to do that. Now, one important observation we make in this passage is the scene of the brothers bowing down to Joseph. Did you notice that? And as soon as they bow down, Joseph immediately doesn't think about, he doesn't go back um, to, to the time when they sold him into slavery. He goes back before that and he remembers the dreams that he had dreamed. Remember, Joseph had dreamed that his brothers one day and then another dream that his whole family was going to bow down before him. And so as soon as he sees his brothers bow down, he remembers that dream. And he knows, wow, it's, it's now coming true. And I think this helps us understand his motivation uh, for the way he treats his brothers. Now, it, the text does say that he treats them roughly. The text tells us that, we, that he tests them. He, they have a test in this passage. We're going to see him test them um, other times uh, throughout our text. Um, but, but never in this passage, um, in 42 or the following chapters, is there any indication that Joseph ever intends to actually harm them. In fact, we see much compassion um, pouring forth from Joseph, and he's really trying to do all he can to hide um, his compassion. Now, he wisely wants to see if his brothers have changed. Remember, these are the same brothers that the last time he saw them, they wanted to kill him and then decided, well, we're not going to kill him, but we'll sell him into slavery. That's the last time he saw his brothers. For all he knows, they haven't changed any. And so he's not just going to put himself out there right off the bat and and, and perhaps risk some other harm coming to him. And so I think wisely he wants to test them. They claim to be honest men. (laughs) You see the irony there. We're honest men. And all he's thinking about is is watching them fade into the distance as he's being sold into, the, into slavery. Um, and so he, he is, it's probably wise for Joseph to, te- Joseph to test them. And yet from the beginning of his encounter, Joseph recognizes God's hand at work. God had given him the dreams over 20 years ago. God was at work then. God is at work now. And though revenge may have been tempting, God was doing a greater work. So we talk about we talk about the sovereignty of God. God was doing a greater work. And I believe Joseph's trust in God's greater plan prevented him from immediately lashing out in revenge towards his brothers. We're going to see that truth very clearly when we get to chapter 45. One evidence that Joseph is merely testing them and not seeking revenge is in the way that he lessens the test. At first, in chapter 42, he says, all of you are going to stay locked up except for one can go back and bring Benjamin. Three days later, he switches it and he says, all of you can go back and one has to stay. He lessens the, the severity of the test. And one of the results of that is that if, if nine of the ten brothers go back, they were going to be able to carry more food and more provision for Jacob, Joseph's father, and the family that was left. Jacob is concerned about his father. He's concerned about his family. Even in the midst of him testing them, he's showing love towards his family. So he only holds one back so they can get more provisions back home. Another evidence we see um, in, this, in these chapters is that three times we're told that Joseph is moved to tears. And he hides his face the first two times, and the second time he just lets it all, I mean the third time he just lets it all, um, all show. Uh, but here we see him um, begin to weep, and he has to um, take himself from their presence, or they're gonna, his, his cover is going to be blown. We also want to notice what's happening in the brothers' hearts. In verse 21, if you'll notice this, 
they admit their guilt concerning selling Joseph into slavery. See that in verse 21? They actually admit their guilt. They don't realize Joseph is listening to them um, because Joseph has been speaking to them in Egypt, in, in, in Egyptian through an interpreter, but he knows Hebrew. He grew up in their house. And so when they start communicating in Hebrew to one another, he's listening and they don't realize that he knows what they're saying. And so he hears them confessing the sin. And then when you get to verse 28, they actually credit God with working to expose their guilt and bringing this punishment upon them. He says, what is this that God is doing? What has God done? to us. And so they're acknowledging guilt before God. Let me go ahead and give you um, the first truth that I want to share with you in church. It's this. It's, it's a focus on God's sovereignty provides the ingredients for reconciliation. A focus on God's sovereignty provides the ingredients for reconciliation. And then I often think about God's sovereignty in light of our relationships with one another, but it, it does provide these ingredients. These chapters are about more than the reconciliation between these brothers, but they're not about less. And there is something for us to learn here when it comes to broken relationships and seeking reconciliation. True reconciliation requires two main ingredients, okay? If it, were, if it, was, a, if it was a cake, it, there would be two main ingredients that go into that cake called reconciliation when there's a relationship that's been broken. The person who did the sinning must genuinely repent. That's the, that's the first ingredient, uh, repentance. There must be repentance on the part of the one who has sinned. And the person who has hurt must genuinely forgive. There must be genuine forgiveness. Those are the two ingredients. And the starting point for both of those ingredients is seeing the situation from God's perspective and trusting that God is sovereign over it all. Let's look at this first ingredient of forgiveness for just a moment. I mean, being mindful of God's sovereignty can actually help us trust God's plan and forgive rather than seeking revenge. If we're not trusting God's plan, we're going to take matters into our own hands. Again, this truth is going to, we're going to, I've kind of given this truth to you up front and then we'll see it really come to fruition in chapter 45. But, but if we're going to pursue forgiveness rather than revenge when someone wrongs us, we have to have our minds focused on God's bigger plan. And God's bigger plan, what that means is that it's a, it's a plan of life and not death. And so if we're focused on what God is doing in this world, and he is a God who is bringing life in the place of death, as we'll see more clearly in just a moment, then, then we're going to want to make choices that lead to life and not to death. And, and there's nothing life-giving about revenge. There's absolutely nothing life-giving about revenge. However, genuine forgiveness is incredibly life-giving. Forgiveness breathes life into a relationship that is on the verge of complete destruction because of the sin that has brought, uh, brought a separation there in that relationship. There's so much more we could say about forgiveness, but I just want to point out what we see here. The willingness to forgive starts with viewing the situation from God's position of his sovereign control. He's in control, not us. It's not our place to take matters into our own hands and then seek personal revenge. If we do, we're not entrusting ourselves in the situation to God. We're not walking in faith in God's sovereign plan. Now, I have to say, it's not a blind forgiveness. Remember, Joseph is examining them to see if there's been any heart change in them. There's a certain level of forgiveness that that brings restoration in that relationship that can only happen when there's true repentance uh, coming from the person who has sinned. And Joseph is wisely seeing, where's their heart in this? Has their heart changed? And and that kind of thing. And so it's not just a, a blind forgiveness where we're unwilling to say what this person did is wrong. He, he, is, he is saying, he, he, and we'll see this throughout, they sold him into slavery. He never denies the fact that they have wronged him. He doesn't ignore it, but he forgives. He doesn't pretend like it didn't happen, but he chooses to forgive. What about the other ingredient for reconciliation? Well, there's got to be genuine repentance if there's going to really be a genuine reconciliation in that relationship. So being mindful of God's sovereignty can help us receive conviction with humility leading to repentance. And we see that beginning with the brothers in chapter 42. With their admission of guilt and really even before God there in verse 28. Now if I'm the one who has committed the sin and therefore am the one in the relationship who needs to confess and who needs to repent. Then I've got to start by seeing my sin in light of who God is. I've got to see my sin in light of the sovereignty of God. Now, despite how horribly they acted in the past, the the, the brothers here, they begin to show a glimmer of, of faith in the Lord as they admit that they have sinned against their brother, but ultimately they are guilty before God. 
And that leads to repentance in their lives. God is sovereignly working through these tests that Joseph is putting them through. Remember, behind Joseph's actions is God's actions. So as Joseph puts them through these tests, God is sovereign over that. So God is using the test that Joseph is putting them through to expose the guilt in their lives, which leads them to a place ultimately of confession and repentance before Joseph and before God. Okay. Let's go back to the text. So Joseph has sent all of them home except Simeon. He secretly gives them all their money back. He gives them even extra. He gives them provisions for the journey. He tells them not to return unless Benjamin is with them. Why would he say that? Well, he wants to see if they actually are honest now. For all he knows, they have now treated his brother, his full brother, Benjamin, the same way that they treated him. Because He probably is wise enough to know that Benjamin has probably taken his place as the favorite. What did they do to the last favorite of their father? Sold him into slavery. Who knows what they've done to Benjamin? He wants some proof that Benjamin is still alive, that they are telling the truth. And so he says, you're not going to come back unless um, unless Benjamin is with us. Chapter 43. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again and buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel, by the way, remember, Israel and Jacob is the same guy. His name was changed from, changed from Jacob to Israel, and so we see both of his names here. I don't want that to confuse you. Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety from my hand. You shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. A little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio, nuts and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present and they took double the money with them. And Benjamin, they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water and they washed their feet. And when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. For they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God, be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, controlling himself. He said, serve, serve the food. 
They served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. All right, what do we see in chapter 43? Let me make quick six observations, okay? Um, it's not going to really be much to write down here if you're taking notes. Just, just going to notice some verses here. First, notice again the phrase, live and not die, in verse 8. Same thing that this whole section started with in chapter 42. Judah repeats that in chapter 43, that we may live and not die. It's a passage about life and death. A second observation. Notice that Judah begins to step forward as the leader. If you remember some of the things we've already talked about Judah, That shouldn't surprise us, Um, but Judah is now emerging as the leader, and he's actually emerging as a good leader, all right? Um, And so we'll talk more about that in in a moment. Reuben had come up with a bad plan um, to, to talk Jacob into... Sending Benjamin, he said, hey, if, this is at the end of chapter 42. If, if we don't bring Benjamin back, you can kill my two sons. That's a terrible plan. I mean, why is Jacob going to say, oh, that'll, that'll make me so happy. I'll kill two of my grandsons if you don't bring one of my sons back. I mean, this is a, this is a, Reuben's plan is awful, okay? Notice Judah's plan. If we don't bring Benjamin back to you, I will bear the blame. He doesn't push the punishment or the blame off onto his children or somebody else. He takes it upon himself. Keep that in the back of your mind, okay, for when we get to chapter 44. Third observation. Notice Jacob's total dependence upon God's mercy. Verse 14, it's a key verse. You can underline it if you want to. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Here's what this means. Jacob is now in a place where he is having to completely trust that God will be merciful to his family and preserve his life by preserving the lives of Simeon and Benjamin. Remember, Simeon's in custody in Egypt, and he's about to send Benjamin there as well. And so he is completely dependent upon the mercy of God. He has no control over the situation. He is at the mercy of Almighty God. So whatever blessing we see God provide in these chapters, it will be an act of mercy from God. Fourth um, observation. Our attention is directed to God's sovereignty in verse 23. The the brothers are pleading their case before Joseph's steward. Um, They're saying, look, last time when we left, we got home and all the money was back in our bags. We we didn't steal it. We don't know who put it there. Because they're thinking that we're going to get in big trouble when we get back. And they say, you've stolen this money. And they say, we didn't didn't do that. And, and, And notice what the steward says. He says, I received your money. God put that in your bag. Now, did God put that in their bag? No and yes. No, Joseph, we were told, is the one who gave the order for the money to be put back in the bag. Who's sovereign over this whole situation? God. And so really, in a very real way, it was God's blessing to them in that situation. And so we're just, again, just little clues that we're being we're being put in this position where we're seeing God's hand at work in all different ways. God is granting them mercy when what they deserve is punishment for their past sin. Fifth observation. Notice in verse 26 and in verse 28 that they all, including Benjamin, bow down to Joseph. And so now that dream where his 11 brothers were bowing down to him, it has come true. And so, so again, God's sovereignty um, uh, over this, this entire situation, he has been in control this whole time from the dreams over 20 years earlier to right now in Egypt, and they're bowing down before him. And in sixth observation, I want you to notice that Joseph messes with their minds a little bit. I like this. Joseph, Joseph messes with their minds some. When they sit down to eat, they are arranged. They have, they, have a, they have a seating assignment, okay? They have a seating chart. And when they all find their seats, they sit down and they look around and they are seated in birth order. And then food is brought out to them and Benjamin gets five times as much as the rest of them. How in the world does... This ruler of Egypt know that know their birth order and know that Benjamin is the favorite son. It's like they're right back home. They're in Canaan. They're sitting in birth order and Benjamin gets more than everybody else. Joseph's messing with their mind a little bit. It's almost as if this ruler of Egypt knows them. It's almost as if somebody else is in control of this entire situation. 
And we know that is God. Now, let's go on to chapter 44. Joseph is going to give them a final test here. Chapter 44. Uh, then he commanded the steward of his house, fill them in sack with sacks with food, as much as they can carry, put each man's money in the mouth of the sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest. He's setting them up here with his money for the grain, as, and he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men are sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up. Follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When, they, when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak or how can we clear ourselves? Note this here. God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he, Joseph, said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father should die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now notice what Judah says here. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy. As a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So what's the test here? What's this final test for his brothers? It's this. Here's the test. Will the brothers abandon their youngest brother to slavery and take their money and head back home like they had done to Joseph 20 years earlier in chapter 37. He sets up an opportunity for them to repeat their sin to see if they have actually changed. And by God's grace, they have changed, especially none other than Judah. Make just a few observations from chapter 44. I want you to notice their initial response when their cup is found in Benjamin's sack. What do they do? They tear their clothes and every man loads his donkey up and heads right back to Egypt. 
The steward had just told them that only the person in whose sack the cup was found would have to go back to Egypt. He had just said, we're going to count the rest of you innocent. You can go. You can go back home. Only the one, which is Benjamin, is going to have to go back with us. But the brothers show deep care for Benjamin by tearing their garments and all choosing to return to Egypt with him. Now, over 20 years ago, think about this. They had been the cause of their father tearing his garment as he held Joseph's blood soaked robe. While they, with callous hearts, were just concerned with the little bit of silver that they had jingling in their pockets. They had got from selling Joseph. Now they have an opportunity to do the same thing, to run off with the silver jingling in their pockets and abandon their brother, who is the favorite, they probably don't like him that much, to slavery, but they don't do it. They do exactly the opposite. A change has taken place. They care about Benjamin. They don't take off with the money. They're heartbroken, and they stay with him. And then Judah really comes to the forefront of this story and reveals an incredible change of heart. In verse 16, he clearly admits his and his brother's guilt before Joseph. Now, he still doesn't know that he's talking to Joseph. But the guilt he is referring to is the guilt of what they did to Joseph. Because they didn't do anything wrong in this case. They didn't steal money. They didn't steal the cup. So when he says, our guilt has found us out, he is thinking back 20 years, not even realizing that it's Joseph who is standing in front of him. They clearly have felt the weight of their guilt and they are sorry for what they have done. And then Judah shows a change of heart towards his father. I mean, how many times, if we were to count, how many times he uses the word father in this? He, this one who has mistreated his father so, so bad, he is now caring so much for his father that here's the final observation from chapter 44. He is willing to take Benjamin's place. He is willing to to be put into slavery so that Benjamin can go free. Now, therefore, verse 33, please let your servant, he's speaking about himself in the third person, remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. 22 years earlier, Judah was the one who led the way in selling his brother into slavery. And now Judah leads the way in delivering another brother from slavery by offering himself in exchange for Benjamin's release. Now, what brought about this change of heart is God's work, his sovereign work of exposing Judah's sin. I wish we had time to really dive back into it. But just if you'll remember, we saw at the end of chapter 38, remember the whole Judah and Tamar incident, that really gross passage? At the very end of that, we saw God humble Judah incredibly. And he even admits, you, Tamar, are more righteous. That He admits his unrighteousness. That probably happened very close to this event here in chapter 42, 43, 44, 45. He has been humbled. And now through Joseph's tests, which God is sovereign over, he has been humbled again and he is admitting his sin. He doesn't know it. But God is exposing his sin so that there will now be reconciliation in their relationship. And God is doing something even bigger than reconciling him to his brother Joseph. Because one day there's going to be a son born to the lineage of not Joseph, but Judah, who is going to be the savior of the world. Remember, Judah is the one whose lineage leads to Jesus. We've got to move on to the final chapter for today, chapter 45, and we get to the climax of the story. So fun here, church family. It's so fun. Are you ready? Here we go. Notice everything that's been set up. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood beside him. He, he cried, make everyone go out from me. He's speaking about all the Egyptian servants that were there. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. I mean, he's sobbing here. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. 
And they came near and he said, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God, he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. Take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. And you shall eat of the fat of the land. You, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey to each and all of them. He gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes to his father. He sent as follows: 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of the land of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father, Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. Think about life flowing back into him. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before he died. There's a lot going on here, but I just want us to not miss the big picture. We see the reconciliation that now takes place between the brothers. It is a beautiful picture of reconciliation. Joseph's words in verse 4 where he says, come near to me, that's Joseph extending forgiveness to them. If he didn't forgive them, he would have cast them away. Or done worse to them. But he says, come near to me. Come close to me. That's him extending forgiveness. And the fact that they came near in verse 4 and then talked with him in verse 15 lets us know that they have been reconciled. It's interesting that if we go all the way back to chapter 37, we were told there that the brothers hated, I'm, I'm quoting from scripture, verse, uh, chapter 37, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. And now, after repentance and forgiveness has taken place, we see that they drew near to him and are talking with him. But I remember that I said at the beginning that there's more going on here than simply a story of reconciliation. There's more going on here than a simple lesson in repentance and forgiveness between family members. The reconciliation of this family church is a part of God's bigger plan of getting his people to Egypt to preserve their lives and thus preserve the promised line of Abraham that's going to lead to the promised deliverer of Genesis 3 who would rescue God's people from the curse of sin, which is none other than death. Remember I said this is a life and death passage. I told you I wanted to share with you three truths. I already shared with you one and the last two I'm just going to share with you here at the end. The second truth is this. God sovereignly works to provide a merciful replacement of death with life. Church, this is the gospel. If you love the good news of Jesus, you're going to love this right here. God, in his sovereignty, mercifully provides a replacement of death with life. Life in the place of death. It's the high point of the life of Joseph, this declaration to his brothers. And it's an amazing declaration. He says, now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me 
before you to preserve life. This is an amazing verse when it comes to understanding the relationship between human responsibility, that's human choice, and the sovereignty of God. We'll actually dive into that a little bit more in chapter 50. And so we'll kind of save that for then. But just notice, again, Joseph doesn't deny the choice that his brothers made. He says, you sold me into slavery, but God sent me before you. That's That'll blow your mind right there, okay? But just notice that God was sovereign over it all. Three times in these verses, Joseph says that God sent him to Egypt. Why? What was God's purpose? What was God using his sovereignty for? To replace death with life. Two times, Joseph says, God sent him to Egypt to preserve life. Now, in the short run, God was preserving the lives of Jacob and his family. But when we zoom out, we see that what God was sovereignly working out was his plan that started in the Garden of Eden, where sin and death entered because of the curse that was placed on the world. It enters in, but God promised a deliverer to reverse the curse, to rescue us from the curse, that is, that he would bring life in the place of death. And so the cry of sinful humanity, if we'll see the big picture here, the cry of sinful humanity is the very same cry of Jacob in chapter 42. Something must be done that we would have life instead of death. The cry of sinful humanity is the cry of Jacob in chapter 43. May God grant mercy. We need life in the place of death and there's nothing I can do. It's out of my control. May God grant us mercy. It is a cry for salvation. We deserve death because of our sin, and our only hope is that God would grant us mercy and give us life, which is exactly what he was accomplishing through Joseph. The preservation of this family meant the preservation of the promised seed, who is Jesus who would come from the line of Judah and and through his death and resurrection would deliver us from the consequence of our sin and and bring restoration, reconciliation uh, between us and God our Father. It's through Jesus that God delivers us from death and gives us eternal life. This passage is not merely an example for us of how to reconcile relationships between one another, but it's paving the way for Jesus who is going to come later on in the storyline of Scripture and it's going to do a much greater work of reconciliation reconciling sinful humans to almighty holy god and so the picture of these of these chapters is really church a picture of undeserving people being granted life through one man who trusted god's sovereign plan instead of seeking revenge on those who harmed him does that sound slightly familiar to us as christians let me say that one more time This story is a story of undeserving people being granted life through one man who trusted God's sovereign plan instead of seeking revenge on those who harmed him. Let me give you the third and final truth. I love this. It's about Jesus. Church, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. Why is that? Because it's Jesus who chose self-sacrifice instead of revenge. Why? To accomplish God's sovereign plan of rescue and reconciliation. I would love for you and me to meditate on that. Not just now, but throughout this week. We need Jesus. Why? What has Jesus done? He chose self-sacrifice instead of revenge to accomplish God's sovereign plan of rescue and reconciliation. I just want to point out as we close two pictures of Jesus that we see here in this passage. Two beautiful pictures of Jesus. One is seen in Judah and the other is seen in Joseph. Judah offers himself in the place of Benjamin so that Benjamin can be set free from slavery, so that he can go free. And Joseph chooses to not take revenge, but instead entrusts himself to God's sovereign plan of life. Did you catch that? And what's the result of Judah choosing to sacrifice himself out of a heart of repentance in the place of uh, take the place of Benjamin? And the result of Joseph, instead of seeking revenge, entrusting himself to God's sovereign plan of life? Reconciliation. A story of reconciliation gets painted for us. Now I want to read from 1 Peter. We're going to jump all the way, almost to the end of the Bible, to the New Testament. 
with those pictures in our mind, listen to what Peter says about Jesus. 1 Peter 2, 22-24, He, Jesus, committed no sin, nor was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. In other words, he didn't, he didn't take revenge. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? Continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's God the Father. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That means he took our place. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. That's reconciliation. Do you see this beautiful picture of the gospel? It's incredible. Jesus chose to trust God the Father's bigger plan instead of seeking revenge. And in the process, he took our place in death so that we could have life with the result of us being reconciled to God. That's a story, church, that only God could write. And he's even writing it here in Genesis chapter 42 through 45. What does it leave us? It ought to leave us recognizing that like the sinful brothers, we stand desperately in need of God's life-giving mercy to be poured out upon us. We must humbly repent of our sin and receive God's free gift of forgiveness through faith in Jesus. We must draw near to Jesus as the brothers drew near to Joseph, receiving the forgiveness that God offers us so that we'll be put back into a right relationship with him. And if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, then you must do that so that you can be forgiven and you can receive his mercy and you can be reconciled back to the Father. And when we have been reconciled to God, then Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to pursue reconciliation in our relationships with one another. Right. We who humbly confess to we are to humbly confess sin. We are to we are to mercifully extend forgiveness towards others. We who have been reconciled to God, we ought to pursue reconciliation with one another. We who have been given life are to make life-giving choices in our relationship with others as we trust God's sovereign plan through it all. So church, when revenge looks enticing, God's sovereign plan of preserving life must rule our response. We must not be ruled by the emotions of anger. We must not be ruled by, well, he did this, so I'm going to do that back to him. She did this, I'm going to do that back to him. We let God's sovereign plan of life rule our response because we have been given life, Christians, through God's sovereign plan. In other words, we believe the gospel so that we're put back into a right relationship with God. And then, church, we live out that same gospel story in our lives, in our relationships with one another. By God's grace, church, may we take this large feast of God's word today. I know it's a large feast today. But by God's grace, May we live it out. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for Jesus. May our lives be a celebration of your sovereign plan of life that brings us back to you, putting us back into a right relationship with you. All as a result of your great mercy in replacing the death we deserve with the life that Jesus has purchased for us. Humble us before you. Help us to be thankful for your word. Help us to be thankful for Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.